wanted to share a little bit this morning about this work of uh, serving those in crisis and in need. without imagining that we're the server or getting lost in any attachment whatsoever to the fruits of our labors, to second-guessing God and thinking that we are the healer. We are never more than the healed at best. Ramakrishna used to say one of the things that made him laugh the hardest was when someone say, I healed myself. He says, that's not impossible. He says, what heals comes from the depth that goes beyond self. And this work of serving those who are more evidently in that moment in pain than we are, is the work of going beyond the pain in ourselves so as to serve another. I got into this work kind of through the back door. Um, ten years or so ago I was teaching meditation with uh, Ram Das at a, uh, an intensive in, on the East Coast and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came to the workshop. Ram Das had hooked up with her some, uh, some months before, really strong connection, and she came to the workshop. And some months later, in a, some talking that Elizabeth and I were doing, she said, I'd like you to come and start teaching meditation at my workshops. Um, I'll give you the group every afternoon so that you can show them ways of being more present and uh, dealing with their fear of death when they're serving someone who's dying, dealing with their fear of pain, when they're serving someone in pain. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> I see, obviously, I've got no work with dying, but I could teach meditation. I'll go. Went through the first workshop, it was a five-day, and on the last day, two things happened. I can feel the emotions very strongly right now, my emotions, the emotions. One thing that happened was I remembered Somehow, I don't know how I ever forgot, but I remember that my best friend died when I was seven years old. And Elizabeth said, um, listen, I want you to meet a patient. I had never worked with anybody who was dying. 
said, I want you to meet somebody. And I said, gee, this is, I'd like to go with you, Elizabeth. It, we were about 20 miles from a hospital. We were in uh, Texas. She said, this woman, this is some years ago, this is the first woman to have, one of the first women at the MD Anderson Medical Complex in Houston to have what was a bone marrow transplant. In those days, they bored holes in your bones and took out plugs and put in plugs. Very painful. They have since found out that you can simply inject the platelets into a being and they will be filtered out by the marrow. But they didn't know that then. So I figured, gee, I'm going to get to see Elizabeth work firsthand. What a treat. We walked in the room, and there was a, she pulled a chair up by the side of the bed, and I was looking around for where I was going to sit, and she said, Stephen, sit here. And she went over in the corner. I think I was closer to death at that moment than the woman lying in the bed. I was scared shitless. I was really scared. And all of my knowing, all that superficial conceptual, thoughty, projective, mental construct through which we always form the world and make it safe for ourselves, none of it worked. And we started to do a meditation together because I just, I could hardly say a word, so I said, let's meditate together. <laughs> In a sense, I was saying, let me out of here. I'm going to safe territory. Where's my concentration? Go to my breath. And I saw that even with all the years of practice leading up to that moment, how unprepared I was to just be there. I had always learned to be someone there, to be a meditator there to be a man there, to be a husband there, to be a father there, to be a whatever. But I was always someone. And I could see it had never been so clear in my whole life how that someoneness that we have been trained, conditioned to be, how dense that was and how it separated me from life. In a moment when there was no place, no appropriateness for anything but the direct moment shared between beings. It means I had to stop talking about don't know and allow it to fill me and allow the insecurity that comes with letting go of our knowing to take me beyond. Maybe it was the first time at a certain level that I cared for someone else in the way more than myself, where the love was bigger than the fear. Certainly it wasn't the first time, but it was the most noticeable. It was, I was unable to elude the necessity to let go in order to, in order to serve another. As it turned out, the woman in the bed was very sensitive and very um, compassionate toward me. <laughs> she helped me through very well. She helped me die. She was also very well prepared. They saw after 21 days that um, they were treating her, she was the only person in the hospital to have had this. I think she was maybe the only 
the third in the country. And she was like um, the prize steer at a 4-H convention. All the judges were coming in and prodding her and poking her and seeing which ribbon they'd give her. And she'd had enough. And they said, um, um, this was on Thursday, they said, um, Monday we're going, because the, the, um, the uh, operation was only partially successful, and they were going to do it again, bore more holes in her bones, take, extract more from her <coughs> brother, I think it was. She said, no, she said, I won't be here Monday. And they said, oh, sure, you'll be here Monday. She, of course, wasn't there Monday. Uh, she said, I've had enough. I'll go on now. That moment of sharing, that I was probably only with her, I would imagine it was less than an hour and a half. Being there in that situation where none of the cajoling, none of the faces, none of the masks, none of the old ways of being would suffice, really showed me what a fierce mirror working with people in pain could be. How clearly it reflected to me my attachments, my desire for the world to be different than it was, my desire for people not to be in pain, my desire for me not to be in pain, no different. It is not different than the Vipassana we're learning. Instead of watching the breath, you're watching the tension in the body, the fear in the mind. The breath can mean so many things. So much can mean breath. But the fear, the density, was so distinct. There was no eluding it. And it was very clear that the work of serving others was the most powerful work I could do to serve myself. It was completely selfish, wholly selfish. It wasn't long after that that um, <laughs> I started hanging out with a nun from San Francisco, who worked at St. Francis Hospital. Sister Patrice Burns, some of you may know her. She's the dirtiest laugh of anyone I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> in fact, we'd, be walk we'd come out of a patient's room, and we'd be walking down the hall, and I'd say anything, she'd say anything, and all of a sudden this, he this great, really barroom laugh. <laughs> we'll get down the hall and I would always think, gee, everybody's going to think I'm telling the nun dirty jokes. <laughs> One of the first patients I met in the hospital was a fellow who was dying of stomach cancer. I mentioned him a little bit yesterday when we were talking about people in pain. He was the fellow who had very little pain but was taking a great deal of morphine. He was taking the morphine not because of physical pain but because of mental pain. All around his bed were his family. He was in his 60s. And next to his bed sat his 93-year-old father. Uh, still with a very thick Italian accent. His brother and sister and his 
aunts with a large family there. And they would stand around his bed and talk about, this was midwinter, about this time, I guess, about what color they were going to paint the canoe next summer up at their summer cottage on the lake. And what was he going to put, what flowers was he going to put in this year? He was joining into this conspiracy because he didn't know how not to. He didn't know how to just let them know that this was not to be, that he felt um, that the lease was up on his body. And I was, I'd be sitting in the corner watching this, this, um, this scene going on. Uh, he had told me earlier about being with, uh, he'd been very, very much in love with a woman for 20 years. But because of the, um, the religious significance of um, her having been a divorcee, he was not allowed to marry her within the uh, particular sect he was involved in. So for 20 years he had what his family considered an illicit relationship with this woman. And they still called her that woman. Mm -hmm. Her name was Madeline. She had died a year before with him sitting by the bed of cancer. Her daughter, who was also named Madeline, was at the, his bedside, and she was the closest connection to his heart that was there. But she was also the person who his family felt the least comfortable being in the room with. You can imagine the bind he's in. There's nothing I can say. It's none of my business, and he didn't ask. You know, if you find yourself saying something without being asked, you're probably... Uh, touching a little bit of spiritual fascism, a little bit of I'm going to change you for your own best interest. Baudelaire, in his own distorted and also loving view of the world, defined a saint as someone who whipped other people for their own good. However, to be the instrument of another's karma creates incredible karma for you. Not something to I'll get involved with if one can help it. So I was sitting in the corner, and at one point I started talking to him. We'll say his name was Alfonso. I started saying silently in my heart, Alfonso, all these people are standing around you. All these people are cajoling you and denying your, your mental pain. So you're pretending it's physical pain. I knew he wasn't in physical pain. <coughs> you don't have to do that. Now, I'm saying this silently. Trust death. It's completely natural. Trust it. Let it in. He had a picture of Jesus next to his bed. Clearly, that was the personification of his true nature. That was the way he related to who he really was. I said, just trust the heart of Jesus. Just trust the heart of Jesus. Trust what you feel. And all of a sudden, through this forest of people, there must have been seven or eight people, between where I was sitting in the corner and he was in bed, there was just happened to be a moment where a couple of shoulders parted and his eyes and my eyes caught. And something was transmitted. I knew that we were in connection. And I thought, gee, how remarkable. How powerful love really is. How powerful care really is. And a little while later, he asked everybody to leave the room and asked me to stay. And they thought that was very bizarre. They thought I was some... Jewish priest in the corner. <laughs> uh -huh. 
and we started to talk and talked quite a bit about how he missed Madeline and how death was just fine with him and how his real connection was with Madeline Jr. And we talked about not protecting. And that was that moment. The next day I came in the room. When, he not, when his eyes caught mine, he turned away. Because in one moment he'd been open to death, but the next day I represented that which threatened him. Heart opens and closes. Well, we went through an interesting process where he would open to dying and then he'd close. A few days before he died, before the night shift came on, he said, I want to be disconnected from the various fluids that are being put in me. I want to be let go. I want to die. And he told his family, now, um, in the first funeral car, Aunt so-and-so will sit, and the grandchildren in the second car. And he worked out the cortege and, and everything that needed to be um, decided. Two o'clock in the morning, he rings the bell. Hook me up, hook me up. I've changed my mind. They hook him up. Well, this went on two or three times until he, each of us must walk gently ourselves until he could enter at his own pace death. So he died, and uh, afterward, as is our usual uh, way, when someone dies, when we find out, we'll just sit down where we are and just wish them well, wish them on. So I am sitting there saying, Alfonso, it's all over now. It's all over. Go on. Go into the heart of Jesus. Go into the heart of Jesus. And I hear Alfonso's voice come back, and he says, I'm with Madeline. I've been waiting all my life. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Dealer's choice. <laughs> now, what's interesting about that technique of talking through the heart is, again, like the ah breath, we almost intuitively know it already. We don't trust. We don't trust our depth. We only trust what we know. We hardly trust what we are. A very powerful technique, and a technique which we've used, which this nun, um, Pat, started to, she started to be sitting by the bed of people who were moving restlessly in their half-sleep, and she started talking to them in, their heart in, a, in her heart in a very supportive, very caring way. We noticed people quieting down. But techniques like this, because it is all the work we do, is so much work on ourselves, we really have to watch that edge where we are with another person instead of leading another person. Now, some of the patients we've worked with have said, I want to make a contract with you. I want you to push me. And that's different. And that's different. And then you do. But that wasn't the relationship uh, that is usually with most patients, and particularly in hospitals, where you're seeing so many people at a time. At one of the workshops, a nurse had heard about this technique. And she said, gee, this is a great idea. I've got this real recalcitrant patient. He was in denial. And she thought, in her bargaining with her own unworthiness, that if she could change him, she'd be a better person. 
we can really see in our motivation to serve that place where we are bargaining with our unworthiness. Not to let that stop us, but to not let it obstruct us, to be aware of it. See, that's just another voice in the mind, too. So this woman had said, well, I'm going to start using this technique on Jim. And she uh, started going every morning, and she'd go in uh, when she got on the floor, and she'd sit next to Jim, and without saying a word, because Jim didn't like to talk to people, he was very quiet, his dignity was denial. That was his way. And to take denial away from him would be an act of real cruelty, of selfishness, of fear, of lack of faith in the process in our own process, in being itself, which was a very strong element in this nurse, a very strong lack of trust in the process. She thought she had to do it. She couldn't allow it. See, she started haranguing him silently. Now listen, Jim, this denial, you just got to let go of it. Don't be a sissy. <laughs> listen, you'd be much better off. And she'd have 10 minutes, and then she'd have to be on the floor, and she'd get another five minutes and another 10 minutes. So by the end of the week, she'd probably been sitting by his bed, maybe collectively an hour or two at the most. And she thought, boy, he hasn't said anything, but I know I'm getting through. I'm going to help him. She went home for the weekend. She came in Monday morning, coming onto the floor. The head nurse called her over. She said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to go into Jim's room. And the head nurse said, uh, Jim asked that you don't visit anymore. She said, why? He said, you talk too much. tell stories that are have already been in books that probably a lot of you have read. There's some pictures here and some stories that go with it. I'm not quite sure. I think what I'll do is just leave these pictures out. I'll tell you the stories about these individuals and then if you wish you can see their uh, what they look like. four people here, two women and uh, a man and a, and a young boy. And I'll tell you their stories and you can see some of the process they've gone through in these pictures. Um, friend of Lynn and ours, uh, a fellow who's a fireman, his wife was very ill. Uh, breast cancer, I believe, that had metastasized. And she was a nurse, and she had come to a, she and her husband had come to one of the first workshops eight or so years ago, and in the midst of the workshop, her husband had had a great insight about that no one really dies, but she didn't have that insight, so he was just fine with her death, and she resented it, as one can imagine. She didn't come to resolution. This was months later before she came to resolution with it. And she came to resolution when she had gone to a chiropractor. 
a very good chiropractor. It's kind of a surprise that this happened because this fellow is a meditator and very conscious being. Somehow he didn't pay attention, and when he adjusted her, he crushed three vertebrae because the the cancer had infiltrated in the, the spine. So she went from a time of discomfort and and a lot of mental discomfort to a time of incredible physical agony in the hospital. The first picture of her is a picture of her in a wheelchair, <coughs> and you can just see how disgusted with life she is. I don't think we, this group's too big to even pass the pictures around. You won't be up current with this story. She is really disgusted. She is very angry. The pain got so intense that at one point she turned to her husband and said, you better call Mr. Death now. Mr. Death now. Because she, her husband and I, he was sitting with the group and meditating and seeing it in a very different way. But she, it was not until she was in unbearable pain that she could let death in, that there was no way that the denial mechanism could uh, eliminate from the psyche what was happening in her body. Uh, started going to the hospital every day and working with pain meditations, and it was somewhat helpful, but she was so groggy. Uh, and this is an aside about pain relief. We didn't get in much to the medical aspect of pain. Uh, at the time, and uh, it's still happening in a lot of hospitals, but at that time it was happening quite a bit in most hospitals, pain was given what's called PRN when the patient asks for it. But when the patient asks for it, it's too late. If pain medication is to be uh, maintained, it has to be maintained on a regular schedule whether the person says, I'm in pain now or not. Otherwise, what happens is we're going into pain and we're going into deep relief of pain, grogginess. And we're going into pain, we're going into deep relief of pain. So that you're going up and down, which is incredibly fatiguing and very much limits one's ability to allow the healing to come in, limits the concentration, limits the openness to the moment. Takes, completely takes away a person's control. So at that time, they were still doing that, so sometimes they'd give her a massive shot, and then she'd have to almost be screaming before they'd give her another shot. They didn't want to addict her. <coughs> After a couple of weeks, it was evident that it was her pain medication. She was taking enormous amounts of pain medication. Probably, as any one of her morphine shots would literally have killed anyone in this room now. But she had become so... She was taking over 100 milligrams of, of morphine sulfate at a time. Enormous amounts. And she was just usually knocked out. A couple of days before Mother's Day, her husband and I started talking about, what's, why is she in the hospital? They can't help her. Nothing is really happening that is making her any better here. And then there's visiting hours and crappy food, and her daughter could only come sometimes. Why not take her home? Her doctor really pushed against us taking her home. And she, you can just see it turn around. She just told him, you're not my doctor anymore. Go away. You're not concerned in my best interest. You can't see me anymore. I'm just another number in a bed. And they left, kind of, with him almost um, tugging at her coat sleeves to stay. We took her home, 
in the next 24 hours at home, she took less pain medication in that 24 hours than she had in any single hour in the two weeks before. Being home was just such a relief, such space for her. Being a nurse, she had a lot of friends that were nurses, and she was very, very well cared for. Mother's Day comes, her brothers and her curly-haired, red-headed daughter, a number of friends, are all having Kentucky Fried Chicken on the lawn, and one by one, Oh, she wakes up that morning. I'm sitting next to the bed. She wakes up that morning. I said, Kathy, today's Mother's Day. She said, oh, it's my day. It's our day. It's everybody's day. One by one, the people came in to say goodbye to her that day. That night, and she's just coming from this place of incredible contraction to just this wide, open, shining space. That night, she is... Uh, She's sleeping, and her husband's sitting next to the bed, and he uh, takes a break around 6 o'clock in the morning, going to get a glass of water. And as often happens, and many of you may have experienced this, sometimes a loved one, very often, a loved one will wait to be alone to die. They're, you've done your thing, and they've been with you, and they feel your pulls, but they've gathered their energy. They need their energy. They gather it, and they leave. He came back from his glass of water, and she was dead. A number of people came in the room. The nurses were called. And by the time the eight or nine in the morning, the room had a half a dozen people in it. And there are pictures of Kathy here, all um, washed up and put in her favorite dress. You can see she almost looks like she's pregnant. Her liver was so distended. And here's this scene of her five-year-old sitting on the bed next to her, playing with her jewelry, and her dead mother's there. And then her five-year-old goes across the street to get her best friend, to bring her best friend in, to sit up on the bed next to dead mommy. The love in that room, as opposed to the potentials of the hospital scene. Her brother's a carpenter, and he's called. He had been working on a coffin, but he didn't dare complete it. Understandably. He says, okay, I've got another couple of hours, work on it, I'll get it done, I'll be over a little bit later. Another brother comes over, her father comes in the room. He comes in the room and he sees all these people who he probably didn't want his daughter to hang out with in the first place. These long-haired weirdos, meditating freaks. And really all he wants to do is kind of get his daughter's body to the mortuary. And he walks in the room and um, people are standing next to the body, uh, those of you who have the chance to be with someone when they die, or even for hours afterward, if you will put your hand very lightly at the top of their head, very often you will feel the energy. Nothing imagined. I mean, you will feel the energy leave. Not for everyone, but for a sizable amount of the people we've worked with. One of the nurses who knew her father takes him over and says, here, put your hand on her head. He's, you know, but he's just kind of, uh, this is strange territory. He's lost his power. He has no ground. So he does it. He puts his hand on her head, and he's walking away, you know, probably thinking, when do I get out of here with my daughter? And all of a sudden he goes, what is that? What is that? And he goes over, and he stands there, and he's feeling his daughter's energy leave through his arm. And he's crying. 
and he's singing and he's, he's almost speaking in tongues. He sits down. Sun comes. She's put in the casket. The casket's put up on a huge uh, dining room table. And everyone's sitting around singing her on. The same people, the same parents, same brothers who came in the room a couple of hours ago just wishing with all their heart and all their might that she could just still be alive. Within two hours, in the spaciousness, in the acceptance, in the love of that room, they are wishing their sister and daughter to go on, to move into death in peace, in self-care. Uh, his lifestyle since has changed incredibly. Now has a long gray beard and lives with an 18-year-old up in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> he got more messages than one might have imagined. <laughs> The teaching there was that nothing really had to be added, that the moment was enough, that the power of the love and the awareness in that room was so intense that even someone who felt no connection felt disconnected, very powerfully participated in that moving on because the love was greater than the fear. It's like a hospice worker uh, we know of. He said, you know, he said, when I go in the room, he's, he's working with this 18-year-old boy who was very badly um, injured and uh, is pretty much paralyzed and um, is in the process of, of leaving his body, a long process, years of process. He said, you know, every time I go into that room, it's like going into church. I thought, wow. He says, I go in that room and I just want to kneel next to that bed. I thought, far out. This guy's really getting it. He said, yeah, I go in there and I look at him and I say, thank Christ it's not me. Oh. <laughs> I said, he's not quite getting the point. <laughs> but this is the way we meet pain so often. There's so much fear, so much removal that we don't have room for their pain because we have so little room for our own. There's a picture here. I don't know if you can see this. This boy is, um, oh, I guess he's about two and a half years old here. This is two weeks before he died. He is in incredible pain in this picture. But you, all you can see is the light. All you can see is, the, I mean, you can't, you can't even see that from there, I'm sure. He was in a hospital crib when I met him, in a hospital with a shunt in his head, dying of leukemia, many secondary, uh, many secondary responses to his medication. He had a fissure in his anus that made the moving of bowels incredibly painful. He had splits and he had cracks and he was bleeding from here and there. When I approached, I approached with two people that he knew very well, his mother, 
and his chemo nurse, uh, who is an old friend of mine and who had invited us to the hospital. And yet when he looked up out of that crib, he looked into his mother's eyes, he looked into this nurse's eyes, he looked into my eyes, and there was no difference in the way he looked up. He wasn't giving or taking any more from any one of those people. He was all there. And when you looked into his eyes, it was like looking into the night sky. There was no end to it. Usually you look into someone's eyes and you can see somewhere back there where, um, how far you're allowed in. There was no limitation to how far you were allowed in. His mother was very, um, she said, you know, I feel very uncomfortable saying this, but I, it's all right with me that he's dying. And I can't understand how it could be so. It's impossible. But I know it's all right. She thought she was crazy. Her husband thought she was crazy. Her husband was a military man. And he was saying, no, my boy, he's going to get better. He's going to get better. And whenever he'd come in the room, there was a tension. The husband would come in the room, the father. There'd be a tension and a fear that was transmitted. And you could feel it in the wife. You could feel it in the doctor. Tommy didn't, the child didn't respond to it at all. The mother sensed that for whatever this means, there was a contract between she and her son. And that both, in a sense, had taken birth to learn this incredibly painful lesson. She said, you know, it's almost as though, this is more, this is sort of her language, she said, it's almost as though between births, these two souls were hanging out and they said, gee, I need to learn more about how to let love in and I need to know more about the preciousness of compassion and the deepening of wisdom. The other one said, gee, so do I. And they figured out some little melodrama. Let's see, I think what I'll do, they said, one of them says to the other, says, I think I'll be born and be a, I'll be a, one of us will be a woman who's born and not very well liked and not very well cared for, married into a situation where there's not a lot of care and not a lot of love and all of a sudden there'll be this golden child born, the essence of love, like a son in a cold life. And then this incredible attachment, this incredible connection will develop, and this child will be loved as he could almost never be loved anywhere else because he was such a son and so appreciated. And we'll go through this for two and a half years and then we'll, then we'll break it, then we'll take the next level of that learning, and when uh, the son will die, and the mother will be left to let her heart be torn open to all the children in the universe, to the pain we all share. She said, then I think maybe we flip for it to see who is going to be the mom and who is going to be the child. And she said, I got the mother and I came in and 30 years later, Tommy came in. So she had real peace with his passing, with his dying. She didn't understand it, but she didn't need to. She felt its okayness. At the funeral, the father, the military man, had an, a remarkable experience of all of a sudden, in the midst of his anger and his grief and his 
and his guilt and his self-hatred at not maybe having heard Tommy deeply enough, not having said goodbye. Um, kind of he was always waiting for Tommy to come home to get on with his life. Tommy never came home. All of a sudden, he sees Tommy above the casket, laughing and waving and kind of waiting for him to get it. And he started to laugh in the funeral. <laughs> Luckily, nobody ran over and gave him a shot of Valium. <laughs> and afterward, he too said, you know, I don't understand why, but it's okay. And he then started to become the son in his wife's life. All his holding, something, his pain was greater. He just couldn't hold on anymore. Nothing in his life, all his stance, all his being someone, he saw to be such suffering when it separated him from the death of his child and the life of his wife, which he'd always been separated from. They now have two children and you wouldn't recognize it as the same relationship. Took such pain, what an initiation. Sometimes it really takes a lot to get our attention. But if you look at Tommy's face, uh, I don't think you'll feel sorry for him at all. <coughs> we spoke a little bit about uh, the fellow who had been climbing the walls, feeling such a resistance. His name is Chris. He was, uh, he was dying of um, Hodgkin's disease. Interestingly enough, he is the only person I've ever known who was dying, who went to a strange town and rented an apartment. He said, well, I'm just, I have to get on with my dying. He always, and what was interesting was he thought he didn't have courage. It was one of his predominant lacks of self-esteem was he thought he lacked courage. He was one of the most courageous people I've ever met in this situation. He looked in his closet and he saw the clothes he wasn't going to be able to wear again. And he saw his new car out the window that he was never going to drive. And his books and his paintings and everything that he had accumulated in his life gave him no preparation for that moment. And he felt just horrible. It was a very, very hard time for him. Then he started to sense the universal in his predicament. He started to sense that he was only one of tens of thousands of beings in a bed of agony at that moment. And it was in that sense of his participating in the universal suffering there was a sense of space in which to experience his experience. And that is the time, as I mentioned the other day, when it turned and he said, you know, acceptance is magic. As he became more, as his sense of his participation in something that was not isolated, but was part of the process we all share, as that deepened, they became a lightness in the house, a humor in the house. He... Um, had a problem, as many people who are kachexic, who have lost a good deal of flesh and, and uh, 
tissue through cancer, through uh, malnutrition and such. He was about, um, well, his picture's here. He looks like someone from Auschwitz. He was about 70 pounds, 75 pounds. Actually, after he died, his mother showed me a picture of him, and he'd been portly before. It was so striking to see him with uh, another hundred pounds of flesh on him. Bowel problems. In fact, it's thought that uh, the hospices in England speak of the probability that most people who are cachexic, most people who are in the advanced stages of the body deteriorating, actually die from having bowels in them more than a couple of days. Their system simply can't rid itself of that kind of toxin. So they're right at the edge. That's all it takes. So for Chris, it was a very big issue. He wasn't that close, but when he was constipated for a few days, he just is very sick, very sick. So a bowel movement became a very serious thing in the house. People would be giving him enemas and making teas, and uh, you could hear that the minds of the people were as constipated as his colon were. And every time that he didn't move his bowels, everybody in the room was getting more and more constipated. And the tension was really taking away, I mean, yes, he could touch that space of acceptance and spaciousness sometimes, as we all can, but when the pain is heavy, when the nausea is intense, it really puts us in touch with the places that we don't feel so good about things. Really, we can really see the places of our holdings, of our long and very deep holdings. So it, at the moment I thought, gee, this is getting a little too tense, a little too serious. This is, he's really getting, it's getting into a little bit of a panic state. So we had a fleet, some of you have heard this story. So we had a fleet enema, and we warmed it up. We gave him a fleet enema. Nothing's happening. <laughs> gave him another fleet enema, and he's starting to go, oh no, this isn't going to work. Damn it, I'm not going to be able to shit. I'm just not going to be able to. So I grabbed his t-shirt. This is the power of intuition. I grabbed his t-shirt and I started dancing around the room. S-H-I-T! S-H-I! And he laughed so hard he shit all over the bed. And he's laying in his shit and he's hitting his hands. He's like, oh, how wonderful, how wonderful. Now that is not a technique I've repeated. In that moment it was perfect. It had to be let go of. Like any insight, it suited that one. And what's next? When Chris died, because so many people had been working with him and helping him, um, as we often do, we try to keep the body around as long as possible. It is really phenomenal to hang out with the body after it's died for a few hours. You will see a change come over it that you will not believe is true. Your mind will be grasping for reasons that there's such shining light coming out of that being's face. If you, I don't know if you can see Chris's face here. This is Chris a couple of hours after he died but it's the face of Christ. If you get the chance to hang out with someone for hours and to let death into your heart and to watch the process, you'll be quite amazed. It might help dispel some of your fears of the unknown. Not by giving you understanding, but just by giving you trust in the unknown. So it happened that Chris died on the day, the same day that the meditation group usually met in Santa Cruz. So what we did, uh, he died in the morning. I actually <coughs> died as I was, I, was, I was washing his body. 
And as I was washing his body, which I'd done many times before, I looked at it and I said, now many times Chris and I had talked about him not being his body. I was looking at it and it was just so striking how he was this, wasn't this waxen, yellowish, cold, uh, empty form. And as I was washing it, he was in a coma. What's called a coma. And as I was washing it, I said to him aloud, I said, Chris, how for a moment could you think this is who you are? I mean, and I believed it as strongly as I had ever believed it in saying it to him. And there was a way whenever I'd say anything about him not being his body before, he would go in a certain way and then we hit a denseness, a, a different knowing, a different belief, a different fear. But this time, as I said it, I could feel it go in him, through him, and he just left right with it. He just left his body. One tear rolled out of the corner of his eyes, and he left his body. Very showy. <laughs> so we have the meditation group there that night. Now his parents, who came from Canada, had visited a couple of weeks before, not knowing when he was going to pass away, and had just left in our uh, keeping the... We were supposed to call the mortuary and everything, and they'd come down. It would take them 24 hours to get there. So we were supposed to take care of the funeral arrangements. So we saw no need to really get him uh, in the ground any quicker than necessary. So we hung out with him about... Uh, he probably died at 6 or 7 in the morning. Meditation group met about... 7.30 or 8 at night, it was probably over around 10. Everyone was sitting around, you can see in the pictures a few people, sitting around singing, we meditated for an hour, then somebody brought out a sitar and we sang for an hour with Chris um, in the middle of the room. He left and then I realized, you know, this, everything was done, everyone had said goodbye, which is a wonderful place to do it at home. No need for a funeral, that was it. Call the... the um, Mortuary. Now these fellows are trained to not react. <laughs> However, when they came in the room and they touched him, they knew that he'd been dead for about 18 hours. <laughs> and you could just see them thinking, what have they been doing with this body for 18 hours? <laughs> I mean, it was California after all. <laughs> but they didn't cop to it. But they were so nervous that as they put Chris on the litter, they'd turn and he'd fall off. And they tried to get him up. They were trying to get out of that room. And I could just hear Chris laughing with all that. <laughs> this is a poem by Rumi. Today, like every other day, we wake up empty and scared. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down the dulcimer. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are thousands of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And one of them may be dancing around a dying person's room, chanting S-H-I-A. No way to know how to let all of that come through us except by cultivating the ability to get out of our own way and let it come through. Actually, I don't feel like telling any more stories.
The other person's picture, um, if you've read um, Meetings at the Edge, in the book she's called Mary. She was the nurse who had cancer and talked about how when the other nurses came by her room, after a while they closed the door and they couldn't look at her because she was deaf. She was the death they couldn't allow in themselves. She was the life they couldn't allow in themselves. She had a very rough time. And eventually at her pizza baptism party, when she said goodbye to everyone and kind of let death in, the joy in the room scared away most of the nurses. One of the most beautiful... Uh, well, you read the story because it's much too long to tell and I'm just a little hoarse. She was something. Are there any questions about what we're sharing? In Yes, please. Violent death. You mean sudden death or vi violent death? I guess this is that day, isn't it? For three years, we, Andre and I, had a 24-hour uh, consultation phone in our house. And there was one week, very distinctly in our memory, where every morning, at eight, uh, between about 8 and 8.30, we got a phone call from a different mother whose child had been murdered uh, within the f few previous days. In almost every case, the mother was going through the torment of reliving again and again the experience that the child actually only went through once. Again and again the child was raped, again and again the child was mutilated, again and again the child was strangled. As they started to see that they actually were suffering more than their child did, that the child's suffering lasted X, but their suffering was infinite, there seemed to be some help for them in that. But really, in that kind of situation, all one can do is just be there and let their heart be torn open. And watch the tendency that would want to change them, or want to make them well. Watch how you're touching their pain with your fear instead of your love, instead of your kindness. So that they can be in unbearable pain, and there's nothing in you that needs to close up. And there's everything in you that tries to close up, that screams to close up. That's why this work is so precious. Um, a friend of ours, she wasn't, she'd become a friend since, a woman we know, came home one night and um, she's a potter. She'd been at her studio, single mother, 12-year-old son in her next bedroom. She goes into her room, she goes to sleep. She thinks, gee, he must, he must have come home early. I believe the light must have been on under the door. She knew he was home because she didn't look in on him. Next morning she gets up and he's late for school and she opens the door and there he's laying across the bed with his hands tied and his throat slit. He'd been dead when she came home. 
They still haven't caught the murderer, but they felt, and she felt at the time, the door was unlocked. Somebody she knew must have done it, and she went crazy. What changed it for her is when, at one point, she turned, she said, I know my, my life is never going to be the same. When she could see that it had to be from that ground that she would continue, not from yanking back, pulling back into the past, then she could let the grief and the anger tear her open, and she could get on with the work. In a sudden death, it, there is that, that, that feeling of such a tearing, such a removal, the mind's tendency to grasp, to try to recreate the past, is so intense that uh, one becomes almost psychotic. The, the present is so unacceptable. The present is such hell. There's so much resistance. Her experience was, why didn't I know my son was dead in the next room? What kind of a mother am I? And you can imagine, as that gets more and more amplified, how easy it would be to really hold on to that thought, your whole life to become that thought. Much like another woman we know whose child uh, had come home complaining of flu and said, Mommy, I'd like to see the doctor. And she said, No, no, you just got some flu. You know who we're talking about from Brighton Bush. Doesn't matter. Um, some of you met her a year or so ago in Brighton Bush, the mother. And the child died in her arms. And she said, I, she said, while I was kind of waiting for the child to get better, I called the doctor, he came and saw her, but the doctor didn't quite tune in on it either. And I was kind of waiting for her to stop being so self-pitying so I could go to work. And while she was distracted in that manner, her daughter died in her arms. And her guilt was so great that she ended up in a mental institution. It is very hard to come to a resolution. One of the reasons being, I think, that grief really is a process of being thrown into the mind. That really what we experience in grief is the separatism that always existed. It's nothing new. That where we always related to the other person as I and other, as mother and daughter, as father and son, as husband and wife, as lover and lover, as father and son, whatever the relationship. Always that has been in separateness to some degree and a cause of great difficulty and it is the nature of unfinished business. When that moment comes, it's still pretty astonishing how absent they are, how completely absent they are, and how clear it is to us that we have not touched as deeply as we wished. A father of one uh, child that was murdered said, you know, he said, when I look back at my life with my daughter, he said, the moments when we were not father and daughter, the moments when we were just, moments when it was just mm, together, beyond me knowing it, her not knowing it, any role. He said, if I put all those moments of that kind of pure touching together in a lifetime, he said, I don't know if it would equal a week in 13 years of her life. 
His grief was the grief that was always there but never quite seen. And I think in the first stages of grief, and it's never so clear as in a sudden death, we are thrown into the mind, into the place of separateness and holding and self-disgust and loathing and, and trepidation and confusion and, and, um, and, um, and pain, holding. As that grief sinks deeper, you'll notice, those of you who have lost loved ones, will notice that in the first stages of losing someone you love, there's a tremendous feeling of separation. You feel them as an absence, as someone whose birthday you will not celebrate. Someone, if it's a child, who you won't see graduate, who you won't see get married, who will not give you grandchildren. You feel the absence from them, the separateness from them. But in grief, in the incredible potential to having been torn open to what was always there, but so deceitfully and skillfully eluded by the mind, it is just uh, impossible not to see. And in that seeing, as painful as it is, for some, and I don't know why some can make that leap and others can't or don't, but for some, all of a sudden they see that it isn't just that moment, it's all of the moments that have led up to then. And then the mind starts to sink into the heart. Then the healing that happens in grief occurs. And the next stage of grief then is the inseparability from that person. How that daughter can never be separate. How that husband can never be, how something can never take them any further away. How they will always be in their heart. Tagore has a beautiful but you know this book better than I do. Hmm. Yeah, I can't find the chapter here. Um, that in here? No, that's not in here. That's very nice. That wasn't what I was referring to, but I thank the deities for providing that. <laughs> Actually, the, the one, thank you for that. Probably better than what I was going to use. <laughs> this is from, it's in the, it's the last sentences in the a chapter about sudden infant death syndrome in the book, but it's a poem from Tagore. And it says, Aunt, this is in the stage when you're inseparable from the being, when, they, when the grief has torn the heart open to it all, beyond the edge. And uh, the poem goes something like, And Auntie will come and say, Sister, where is, where is our son now? And Mother will look and say, He is in my eyes and in my bones. 
And that is the process, that incredibly painful process of healing into that, the grief we've all carried for so long and all share to the degree we cop to it. In sudden death, one is just thrown into that with such violence that it may take uh, months and months for the person to really settle into the recognition of the impossible already having occurred. To help that, it's very skillful if someone uh, loses a loved one, particularly suddenly, to see the body afterward, because the mind simply doesn't believe it, can't believe it, won't believe it. Um, I would say even if, if, if it were a child run over by a train, you say, well, certainly I can't show a body like that to a parent. You can wrap that child up. There could be a pinky showing. The mother, the father, the brothers, they know that pinky. Just a form, something to let the heart recognize the immensity of that impermanence, to let it in, to acknowledge it. I would say that is probably the single most important thing you can do for someone who has experienced a sudden death to help them get on with it. The other thing is, it's very clear that we really uh, maybe can't get on with our grieving until we acknowledge how angry we might be at that person. In a lot of sudden deaths, it may be that it was a teenage girl um, out at two in the morning and she was smoking a joint and drinking a beer and she went off the road. And all the parents love and miss her incredibly. They're also pissed. They're also angry. To the, but they think, oh, how can I be angry? Again, we are so merciless with ourselves that what is simply isn't acceptable. It's very important that they, maybe at the body, maybe it's some image of the body afterward, that they really say how angry they are, how fiercely angry they are. And then they can cry, and then they can communicate, and I'm sure it's not the first time they will have said it. But it's important that those expressions are allowed so that a person can get on in a sudden death. Did you have a more specific something that you were working with with someone in a sudden death? What confusion. <laughs> mm.
Maintain the separation. Really, all you can do to help them get in touch with your feelings is be in touch with your own so that they see that it's safe, that it's all right to cry. When that young girl died in her mother's arms, it was in the town we lived in, and we were asked to come to the school, and there was a lot of confusion, same, similar situation, a little bit mellower than, than yours. Um, but many of the children said that they didn't know when they heard she died, they, they kind of wanted to get out of the house because if they started to get it, their parents would say, would press it down, you know, cry into the pillow. Don't, don't express it. Keep it to yourself. Uh, you know, don't be... What we saw the children do is the children, after we talked for a while, and her brother was in the school too, her younger brother, when they, as they felt better about it, and the teachers here were much, they were hanging back, they were good, in fact they'd asked us to come. The children started holding each other, because they couldn't get it from anybody else, because no one else understood. And just allowing them, and of course I think too that the teachers were holding each other too, because they maybe they did it in the teacher's lounge. We come out of our, the closet of our grease very slowly if at all. And then you look at that person, that teacher, 
And if they aren't acting in grief the way you want them to, all of a sudden they become the object of your mind instead of the subject of your heart. And you are just more grief in the room. That grief, there's that separation. In a sense, the work just never ends. It's always letting go of that separation. Uh, and it's not surprising that people react. What seems astounding to Andrea and I is that anyone should have to come to us and ask, what do you do with your grief? How do you die? Something as natural, as powerful, as universal as that has been pushed away, has been closeted so profoundly that we don't know what to do with it. Amazing. Really amazing. Bizarre. My throat would like to take a break, so um, why don't we take um, 15 minutes or so? If you want to look at these photographs, please do. And please keep the silence. <coughs> would you turn that off? Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.